Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So Ernie reminded me to introduce myself. <laughs> so my name is Oren J. Sofer. Um, I live here in the East Bay. I'm on the member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, and I teach at some of the groups um, here in the Bay Area, and I lead retreats and workshops uh, around the country on Dhamma practice and also communication. So I wanted to talk a little bit tonight um, about some of the things that I've learned over the years in integrating this practice into our relationships and our conversations. And it being Valentine's Day, it seemed like a particularly (laughs) relevant and appropriate uh, time to talk uh, about communication. I know for myself that um, the people that I'm closest to in my life, my family, um, intimate partner, Uh, Those are the relationships where I've experienced some of the the most enriching sense of closeness and intimacy and love, uh, but also some of the most pain. And... um, It's kind of shocking the way we can um, say things to those that we love uh, that are so hurtful. You know, in a moment of reactivity, in a moment of mindlessness. And uh, because the bonds are so strong, because we care so much, uh, there can be a, you know, a level of intensity when there's disagreement or misunderstanding, that makes it hard to stay connected, to hear one another, to be patient, to draw on our deeper intentions and values. So it's been a, um, a point of interest for me um, for almost two decades this question of how do we translate our sitting practice and the values of our contemplative work into our relationships, into our conversations. So I started meditating when I was relatively young. Uh, I was 19, and uh, I kind of dove in headfirst. I went to India. I lived at a Buddhist monastery for several months, and I started a daily practice right away, every day, twice a day, for 45 minutes, you know, really, really took to it. And uh, within a few years, what what I found was that my heart was opening in these beautiful ways in the meditation, feeling very inspired, uh, a lot of love and compassion, and um, feeling a, a kind of unshakable connection with the, the message and the teachings of the Dharma. I was working at the Insight Meditation Society in my mid-twenties in the kitchen, cooking. And I'd get into an argument with one of my coworkers about how long to steam the broccoli for, how to cut the carrots, and like all of the compassion and wisdom would suddenly just vanish. I was like, what just happened, you know? (laughs) So I realized that there was something missing. And that if I couldn't stay connected to those values of wisdom and patience and compassion, even in like a little argument with a coworker, then what good was the meditation? And again, so it was even less accessible when I would go home to visit my family down in New Jersey, get into, you know get into a tiff with my brother or uh, conversations with my parents. So it was about that time that I came across the work of a man named Dr. Marshall Rosenberg um, who founded this uh, communication practice called Nonviolent Communication, um, which even though it has that word communication in it, um, is really a much deeper training of the mind. It's really about shifting our consciousness 
and learning to understand and relate to ourselves, to one another, and to the world in a different way. So i just say a few words about, about Marshall and how he came to be doing this work. He grew up in Detroit uh, in the 40s. And he was, um, he was a young boy during the first race riots of Detroit. And when this happened, uh, he couldn't leave their house for a number of days. And s- several dozen people lost their lives just within a few blocks of his house. And later in life, he, he spoke about this time and said that it was a very powerful education for him this experience, and what it taught him was that people might want to hurt you because of the color of your skin. And that was the kind of world we're living in, in this country. So that was a wake-up call. And then as he, as he grew and went to school, um, he got picked on a lot and beat up because he was Jewish. His dad, was a member of the community there in Detroit, also uh, was uh, threatened with physical violence because they were Jewish. So again, he said this was also a very powerful education that someone might want to do violence to you because of your last name. But he also had this experience. um, His grandmother was paralyzed and lived with them. And um, several nights a week, one of his uncles would come over and take care of her. And the uncle would bathe her and feed her. And he would just be beaming just filled with so much joy and happiness being able to take care of his mom. And so that too had a really strong impression on him. Here's this person feeling so delighted, so happy to give, to contribute. And so the contrast between these experiences left him with a very, very deep question. How come some people enjoy giving to others in this life? while other people resort to violence when their needs aren't met. What makes the difference? We, we, we have that potential in each of us to experience happiness and joy through giving or to harm one another. And, how, and, and what makes the difference? So what he found through his research and study in psychology and some of the work that he did was that the ways in which we think and speak play a large role in whether or not we can stay connected to our sense of common humanity and whether or not we will see violence as a viable strategy when things aren't working out. So he, he named the system that he developed nonviolent communication in part because of this connection that he found between language and the willingness to use violence. The other reason he chose that name was very consciously and intentionally to place it within the tradition of Gandhian and Kingian nonviolence because he saw the role that thought and language play in structuring the institutions and systems of our society. And that if we want to work to change the structures that form our society, part of that work needs to include changing the structures in our own mind which have created those institutions. Otherwise, we run the risk of just recreating and perpetuating the dynamics of domination and oppression that are embedded in those institutions. So here I am living at the Insight Meditation Society, arguing over how to cut the carrots, (laughs) meditating and seeing a disconnect. And I come across this person's work and very, very quickly realize that this is a bridge it filled a gap in the teachings for me. So many of you have been studying or practicing Buddhism for many years, and you're familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path, this template that the Buddha came up with to describe the kind of complete cultivation of the heart and the mind that's at the, heart, that's at the core of this path, which is not just about meditation. It's about how we live. And it includes a development of certain perspectives on life, a training in wisdom, how we look at things, the qualities of intention that we bring forth. And it also includes a training in our conduct, how we relate to one another, how we earn our living, the choices we make, and very specifically, the ways in which we speak and listen. 
So the guidelines that come out of the Buddhist tradition for right speech are very, very clear, very inspiring. But if you start to look at the early texts, you'll see there's not a whole lot of how-to. The, 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 the basic guidelines are to refrain from using speech in ways that are false, harsh, divisive, or wasteful, just pointless, just wasting words. And so we can all listen to that and recognize what it means and go, yeah, it makes sense. You know, don't lie, don't, don't speak harshly, don't pit people against one another. But when we're in an argument with somebody or when a loved one does something that really hurts and we're filled with reactivity, how do we transform that energy to not speak harshly? When someone does something that we really strongly disagree with, that frightens us or upsets us, and we're talking to a third party about it, how do we express our deep values and care without being divisive, without trying to get that person on our side against the third party? How do we actually do that? So what I found was that this, this system of nonviolent communication gave me some very concrete tools to put these teachings into practice and to start to translate the values of wisdom and compassion and patience and peacefulness, generosity, into my conversations. Not only that, but I found that the more I worked with my speech and communication, the more it started to actually reshape my mind in a way that was very supportive of the meditation practice. So it was like this cycle. The meditation practice was strengthening the values and the intentions, and then the communication practice was transforming the ways in which I was thinking and relating to things, which then fed back in to the meditation practice. So if you're here tonight, listening to this talk, it's probably safe to assume that you have some interest in transformation. Whether that's personal transformation or social transformation. Meditation is a very powerful tool. Very powerful method for transforming our minds. Communication, I would suggest to you, is as powerful a tool for transforming our minds and our society. So if you step back for a moment and think about it, how much do we communicate every day? Just think about your life for a moment. How much of the day are you communicating? Now include your device social media, reading the news, texting. Now include that narrative that's going all the time when you're alone, communicating to yourself. So we're communicating all day long, every day, in every area of our life. We're doing it at home, we're doing it with friends, we're doing it at work. So if you're interested in transformation, if you make one change in your communication patterns, just one small change, that's going to affect everything in your life because we're doing it all the time. If you're interested in seeing more clearly and experiencing more compassion and less suffering in your life, try transforming how you talk to yourself. One change can have dramatic effects in our quality of well-being in life. So if you're interested in transformation, communication is one of the most accessible and powerful levers for change precisely because of the place that it holds in our lives. We're doing it all the time, and not only that, but it is determining the the quality of our relationships. A relationship is a series of interactions over time. And most of those interactions involve communication of some kind, whether verbal or nonverbal. 
So if you want to have more meaningful relationships, healthier conversations in your life, again, one small change in your communication will have far-reaching effects. I, I want to read to you just a few paragraphs from, from the beginning of my book, from the introduction, about the place that communication holds in our lives and, and, and the power that it has. What we say matters. We've each felt the power that words have to heal, soothe, or uplift us. Even one caring remark can make the difference between giving up and finding the strength to face life's challenges. We each also know something of the great harm that can be inflicted through speech. Sharp words laced with anger or cruelty can break a relationship and burn for years. Language can be used to manipulate and coerce on a mass scale to fuel fear, war, and oppression, or to advance political agendas of genocide or terror. Few things so powerful are also so commonplace. Words are woven into the fabric of our lives. Your first love, your first job, your last goodbye to someone you love, our beginnings and endings and the countless moments in between are punctuated by a play of words as we share our thoughts, feelings, and desires. The creation myths of many cultures throughout and religions through time, East, West, and indigenous, recognize the generative power of words, giving the potency of speech a key role in the beginning of the cosmos. Indeed, words have the power to shape our reality. As we think, so we perceive. As we perceive, so we act. Moreover, the teachings of all world religions reflect a universal understanding about the ethical implications of language, its potential for good or harm, and include moral guidelines around the appropriate use of speech. What we say matters, perhaps now more than ever. We live in times of great change in which much is being asked of us. We live at a time when we are less and less able to listen and really hear one another in society. At a time when those with different views, beliefs, or backgrounds are once again so easily cast as the other. At this time, when great forces of political, social, economic, and environmental change are sweeping the globe, intensifying our separation from self, others, and life, we need to learn how to speak and listen in a new way. So these skills are not just important for our personal lives. This is the, this is the building block of civil society, the ability to actually have dialogue across differences. And, you know, we've seen in the last two years and in particular in the last two months just the, the complete breakdown of communication in the government in this country, just the inability to actually continue a conversation or a negotiation. So what I'd like to share with you in the time that we have left is I'd like to share some very specific concrete tools with you and perspectives that I think can be helpful in your life so that you can leave here tonight with something to practice, with something to take into your relationships with your loved one, with your colleagues, with your work. So the system that I've kind of 
discerned in myself over the years of practicing with contemplative meditation and communication techniques has three trainings, three key foundations that we can cultivate. And each of those foundations has a specific uh, step of training. And so I want to talk about what each of those are. Um, this, the, these three foundations form the, the structure of my book. So there's a lot more detail in the book about them. But I want to give you the, the bare bones. And um, each of these, I mentioned these postcards that I have. Um, each of these foundations, there's a, a postcard for it. So you can, you can take some of these to, to remind yourself or give them to that coworker who you think needs communication. <laughs> um, so the three, what are the three foundations? So the three foundations, the trainings are, the first is training is in presence. The second training is in our intention. And the third training is in our, is in our attention, what we pay attention to. So I want to say a little bit about each of those and tell you a couple stories and give you some practices that you can, you can work with. So the first and most fundamental prerequisite for having a meaningful conversation is presence. The currency of communication is meaning. Communication is about sending and receiving messages. Whether you're trying to build a bridge or asking someone to marry you or trying to work something out, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to build understanding. That's, that's the currency. That's what we're trading in is meaning. Sending a message, receiving a message. If you want to understand anything, we need to be here first. It's so simple and obvious that we often overlook it. Just consider how many misunderstandings and arguments have you had simply because someone wasn't paying attention? Because someone wasn't listening? Have you ever had the experience of saying something to someone and they're just like a few feet away from you? Their ears are working fine, but they're on their phone or they're daydreaming and it's like they don't even hear you? You know what I'm talking about? Right? There's no presence. If there's no awareness, no communication happens. There's no understanding arises. Because the mind is not receptive. It's not receiving. So the training here, the step, is to, is to do something that I call leading with presence. To lead with presence. It means that before anything else, before what you want to say, how you feel, what happened, your agenda, before any of that, can we just show up? And can we learn how to keep coming from a place of awareness in the conversation. What's it like when somebody, somebody really shows up, when someone's really listening? We feel it, right? It sends a message. When someone's actually present, it communicates something very important. It says, you're worth my time. What you have to say matters to me enough that I'm giving you my precious attention. That changes the conditions in the relationship, in the conversation. It's one of the most essential conditions for having an effective conversation. Is sending that message that we're actually here. We also know what it feels like when someone's not here, right? You can be talking to someone and they're looking at you right in the eye and it's like, hello, where are you, <laughs> right? You can feel it when someone's not there. So this is the first step. One of the things I do is um, teach retreats where we integrate silent meditation practice and interactive communication exercises. I know at least, at least uh, one person here has done one of these retreats with me. Um, so I was teaching one of these retreats in New Mexico this past summer. End of the retreat, we had a closing circle. People were sharing what they learned, what they were taking away. And um, the microphone comes around to this one, one gentleman, mid-70s from Colorado, kind of, kind of cowboy type. I was very curious what he was going to say. He'd been pretty quiet the whole week. He takes this long pause and he says, 
What I learned this week is that my wife is the person I talk to the most, but talk with the least. I'm going to change that when I go home. This is what it means to lead with presence. We realize that there's another human being in front of us. And we open that space to a true encounter that's mutual. How can we actually, how can we have a conversation if that's not in place? How can we have a meaningful conversation? And there are specific tools, practices that we can take up so that it's not just by chance, it's not just random whether or not we're actually present in our conversations or our life. So I want to give you just two tools for how to lead with presence. I'm giving you two because different things work for different people. You just need to find one thing that works for you. So, number one, try to feel your body. So right now, as you're sitting there listening to me talk, as you're seeing my image, the Buddha Rupa is behind me, can you, can you feel your body? You just feel its weight, maybe feel your hands. Can you still be aware of what I'm saying and seeing me while you can feel your body just a little bit? It's not that hard, right? So you're a little bit more present now that I called attention to your body. Sensations don't exist in the past or the future. If you are aware of a sensation, you are for that moment present. So if we can feel just a little bit of sensation in our body in a conversation, that's going to help us to stay here. So this is one way that you can practice leading with presence. Number two, try pausing. doesn't need to be a long pause, just like that. A beat, a moment, half a breath between phrases. So one of the postcards I have out there says, pause. One breath can change what you say next. Think about how much grief we all could have saved ourselves in life by just, don't say that. Or like not hitting send on the email, <laughs> right? Just that, just that like one second, two seconds of a pause. Maybe I'll leave it as a draft and sleep on it. Come back to it again tomorrow. It can make all the difference. So this is about leading with presence. This gets us on the map in the conversation. The next training is about our intention. Where are we coming from? So one of the things that we notice as we practice with mindfulness and meditation in our life is that our actions, our words, our speech, and our thoughts are driven by our intentions. Intention is what shapes and directs our course of action in life. A very, very powerful factor in human experience, and particularly in the Buddhist psychology, because intention is what creates karma from the Buddhist perspective. It's, it's the seed that determines the ethical tone and outcome of our actions. Intention is very important in conversations because it, too, creates the tone. So where are we coming from in a conversation? Are we even aware of our intentions? Are we trying to be right, to get what we want, to blame the other person, to defend ourselves, to manipulate the situation? Or are we genuinely trying to work together, to hear one another, to figure things out? A lot of our communication is nonverbal. They've done different, different studies on this, very fascinating work. Um, so depending on the context, the percentages vary, but it's very high. A large degree of our communication is body language, so gesture, facial expression, posture, and tone, tone of voice. So when you're having a conversation with somebody and the words that they're saying don't match the body language and the tone, which do you believe? Right. We, we, we believe that nonverbal communication, right? That's what we actually trust. So what do you think is shaping all of that nonverbal communication? It's our intention. It's where we're coming from 
that is animating our facial expressions, our body posture, our tone of voice. So when we begin, when we begin to become aware of our intentions in conversation and actually choose helpful, clear intentions, that starts to determine the whole trajectory of the conversation. And it shifts. It shifts the atmosphere and the tone. One of the things that I I find myself saying again and again is that intention is perhaps the single most powerful and transformative ingredient in a dialogue. If you can if you can identify a very a helpful intention that's genuine and really come from that place in a conversation you don't need to have a whole lot of communication training to to get the right words because the intention will come through and the other person will pick up on that so the default training here in this foundation of intention is to learn how to come from curiosity and care These are two very powerful intentions in contemplative practice and in relationship. Curiosity is interest, mindfulness, wanting to know, looking closely. Care, loving kindness. Just a few words of kindness can transform a conflict that come from the heart. So I want want to tell you another story about the power of intention. I came across this story when I was doing some research for my book, um, there's a man by the name of Daryl Davis. He's an African-American author, actor, and musician. And uh, Daryl spent the first uh, few years of his life overseas. His father was in the military. And he moved to Boston. He moved to Massachusetts when he was 9 or 10. And he joined the Cub Scouts. And he was the only black kid in the Cub Scouts. And they had a parade in the town. They were marching through the town. And... Um, some of the white folks in the town started throwing bottles and stones and fruit at him. And the kind of uh, scout leader had to take him aside and protect him. And he, he didn't understand what was going on. His father had to explain to him that people were angry and didn't like him because of the color of his skin. He hadn't been exposed to the racism that is so embedded in this country because he grown up overseas. And when his father explained this to him, he said, but how can they hate me if they don't know me? He he couldn't understand. How can someone hate you if they don't know you? So kind of in a way similar to Marshall, this, this left a strong impression on him and left him with this question, how can people hate others if they don't know them? So later in life, in the early 80s, uh, he's, he's, um, playing a gig at an all-white bar down in southern Maryland, playing piano, a jazz gig. And one of the set breaks, this uh, white guy comes up to him, a local, and says, I've never heard a black man play as good as you do. You're almost as good as Jerry Lee Lewis. So... I'm always, I always appreciate when I tell the story and people actually get that. <laughs> a lot of people don't, don't know. So Jerry, for those of you who don't know, Jerry Lee Lewis is a white piano player. So Daryl kind of smiles and he says, well, you know, that's, kinda, that's, that's interesting because uh, actually I know Jerry Lee. He's a friend of mine. And uh, Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play piano the way he does from African-American blues musicians and boogie-woogie piano players. So this white guy's kind of taken aback. He's like, oh, I, 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 I didn't, didn't, know, didn't know that, you know. So um, they sit down and have a drink together and start talking. Daryl's very curious. He just wants to understand this guy, wants to get to know him. Turns out this, this, uh, this man's a member of the KKK in the local community. So they develop a relationship. But they stay in touch. Daryl, with this kind of very uh, genuine curiosity, really wants to understand this man. How can you hate me if you don't know me? And so he listens and asks questions and treats him with nothing but respect and kindness. And over time, this guy comes around. He realizes that his views aren't accurate. So this inspired Daryl to, um, to write a book. 
he wanted to learn more about the KKK. And through this one connection, he ends up interviewing many, many members of the organization in this one area in Maryland. And through his conversations, through the power of his intention to understand, and through treating people with respect and kindness and care, between 40 and 50 members of the organization end up leaving just from their conversations and their relationship. Several of them give Daryl their robe and hoods. The grand wizard asks Daryl to be his daughter's godfather. More than 200 people indirectly through Daryl's uh, uh, connection with these people end up leaving the organization. The whole thing collapsed in Southern Maryland. All from the power of this genuine intention to understand to be curious, to see the humanity in another person rather than judging them. How can you hate me if you don't know me? So this is the power of intention. So how can we practice this? Can we get curious? So one way of doing this that, um, that can be helpful is just with a little phrase So you can say something like, let me see if I'm understanding you. Or let me see if I'm hearing you right. Let me see if I've got it. When someone speaks to you, if you say that first, that's going to help you remember to really listen and get curious. And it's going to signal to them that you're actually trying to understand. It's a very simple way to come from curiosity and care. So this is the second foundation. Lead with presence. Really show up. Come from curiosity and care. Be aware of your intention and make sure that it's actually going to support the kind of conversation or relationship you want to have. I'll say one more thing about our intentions. A lot of times what gets in the way is wanting to be right. We want to be right. If we look more closely at that, usually what we actually want is to be understood. We want someone to understand how we see things or why we see things. We want some empathy for how something affected us. So the next time you find yourself trying to be right, I want to invite you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, has being right ever brought you closer to someone else in your life? (laughs) Number two, whenever you've won an argument and the other person has conceded that you were right, have they ever sort of thanked you with a sense of, you know, I'm so appreciative for you enlightening me and showing me the error of my ways. Now I can actually finally learn. You know? It just doesn't happen that way, right? So we think it's going to satisfy us, but it never really delivers. It's much more satisfying to get the understanding, to be seen and heard for what's true for us. That doesn't come about by trying to be right. It comes about through this genuine intention to understand one another. So I said there are three steps, three trainings, presence, intention, and attention. I've covered two of them. Notice I haven't said anything, really, about the words. Because so much of our communication is not about what we say. It's about where we're coming from inside and the the quality of understanding that we're able to create. So if you left here tonight with nothing else and you just practiced really showing up in your conversations, trying to be present, having a genuine intention to understand or be kind, that will transform your conversations and relationships in life if you can can stay connected to it. It helps to have tools to do that. And this is where the training and attention comes in. So the training and attention 
is where nonviolent communication in the form that Marshall Rosenberg developed uh, is very helpful. So he developed a form of training our attention to notice four particular aspects of experience. And these are our making observations about what happened, clear observations distinct from our evaluations and judgments and interpretations, really just being able to hone in on what specifically are we responding or reacting to. Being able to identify our feelings or emotions, the emotions others are feeling. And more importantly, why? Our emotions are there for a reason. They point to something that matters to us. If you didn't care about something, you wouldn't be feeling emotions about it. So in nonviolent communication, we say that our feelings are a function of our needs. They are an expression of our deep values of what matters to us. And this is very helpful to be able to identify in a situation or a conversation what's actually important. What's this about? What are the deeper needs or values that are at play here? What are the underlying objectives or concerns? So observations, feelings, needs, and last, requests. Where do we go from here? What's going to be helpful? Another way of saying this is what happened? How do you feel about it? Why? And what comes next? Where would you like to go from here? So this is not a script. It's a way of training our mind, training our attention to notice what's most important in a situation. And when we can identify these aspects of our experience, it gives us very simple, clear ways of hearing someone else and expressing ourselves to build understanding. So the step of training here is to learn how to focus on what matters. So this is, this is the other postcard I have out there. It says, focus on what matters. The rest is extra. How much of the time do we get caught up in our judgments, in the blame, in the story of what should have been or why you're wrong or our interpretations of the other person's intentions? Rather than being able to really identify, look, this is what happened. Here's why it didn't work for me. For me. Here's what I'd like right now. I'd like to understand what led to that or how we can do it differently next time. Focus on what matters, what's actually important. So I want to end with, uh, with one more story uh, about this tool of focusing on what matters. There's a, a group of women that... Um, we're at a, a march also in Massachusetts, in Boston, uh, for reproductive rights. This is, um, this is quite, a, quite a number of years ago. And typical demonstration, picket signs, shouting, kind of the whole thing. And somehow, in the space of the demonstration, two women from different sides, from the pro-choice and pro-life, kind of one of them made a joke to the other saying like, this is ridiculous. Here we are yelling at one another. We're never going to get anywhere just shouting and screaming, you know. They exchanged information and decided to get together. And they met for coffee. And then a small group of women from each of the different sides started meeting regularly to talk about their views. But not just about their views, to focus on what matters, to talk about their values, why. Why were they pro-choice? Why were they pro-life? To really try to hear and understand each other. And they got to know one another over, over many months. They got to know each other's families. And to respect the, the, the views and the deep values on both sides. So something very interesting happened. None of the women in either side changed their views. Nobody had this grand aha moment of, I see the light, you're, you're right, and you know, I'm going to change my position. didn't happen that way. But at a certain point, when the women from the pro-life group heard through the grapevine, through the network, that someone was planning on coming to Boston and bombing an abortion clinic, they got together and talked it over. And they sent a very clear message back through the network that said, do not come. You are not welcome in our community. 
To me, that's a victory. They were no longer willing to use violence to accomplish their aims because they saw the humanity on the other side. They didn't agree, but they saw the value. They saw that these people are humans and they care about something important to them. Even though I disagree with them, I'm not willing to use violence. This is the power of these tools. Being able to really hear one another and see, see each other. Underneath the stories, underneath the views, underneath red or blue, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Muslim or Jewish, underneath those labels and categories and the ideas, can we actually focus on what matters and see the humanity in one another? This is the transformative potential of this practice. It teaches us how to see and hear one another in a different way. To listen underneath the message, the blame, the words, the positions, even underneath the actions to something deeper that's shared, that's more universal. Our core values and needs as human beings, what actually motivates us. In Buddhism, we say all beings want to be happy. That's the way it's put. Nonviolent communication and humanistic psychology, we say all human beings are motivated to meet their basic needs, their underlying fundamental needs, not just for food and water and shelter, but for things like understanding and belonging and community, learning and growth and meaning. Can we hear one another on that level? It takes training to listen in this way, to focus on what matters. That's completely possible. So what I'd like to leave you with tonight is the invitation to expand your meditation practice. Don't leave it on the cushion. Don't leave it here at Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Take on this this domain of communication as part of your own transformation, as part of your contemplative practice. And work with it every day. Just take one of these tools that I offered, leading with presence, coming from curiosity and care, focusing on what matters, and make it a mindfulness practice. In your conversations, keep coming back to it. Work on it. I guarantee if you make, if you make one change in your communication patterns, it will affect everything in your life. So I offer these thoughts for your consideration tonight. Thank you so much for your attention. How's everybody doing? Yeah, you still you have a little bit of energy left. Yeah. Okay. Let's 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 do like just one or two questions, and then we'll close with some loving kindness practice. Yes, this gentleman in the back. I, I guess it's more a comment. When you said that the, there was race riots in Detroit, I'm realizing in my different thinking about uh, the assumptions that white people make, I mean, was that really... It, it was probably white people doing something that caused it, you know, or... And, yeah. Yeah. And another thing, years ago, I, I, in the beginning of a book, there was a saying that really struck me as a, an ideal. It said, speak to them according to their understanding. Yeah. And that was very difficult. But, I mean, it's you, people speak, to, and they don't even know what the other person understands. I think just because I have a good idea without yeah. being in that communication. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. She was so quiet the whole night. We didn't even know she was here. (laughs) Please. Uh, She anticipated I have a kind of an unpleasant question. Um, 
So you use the M word in your in your talk. The M word. The M word, manipulation. Uh huh. And um, and and I'm I'm being, you know, kind of both serious and facetious at the same uh-huh. time by calling it that. But I wondered if you could explain what you mean when you use that word. Right. When I said when I was speaking about intention, said is our intention to manipulate? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think there's kind of just a colloquial understanding of that word being to use force um, subtly or directly to get what we want. So we're trying to coerce. We're trying to um, exert force in the situation to uh, meet our needs without taking into account or considering the other person's needs. That's, that's how I would define manipulation. So, you know, I think maybe it was not uh, the most accurate word because it's more of a behavior than an intention. We, we rarely, it's, it's rarely a conscious intention, like, I'm going to manipulate you, right? That's not really an intention. That would be an interpretation of a behavior. Um, but I was using it colloquially to kind of refer to some of the more unconscious ways that we might have uh, an intention in a conversation that, that isn't helpful. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think I think kind of another dimension maybe is is um, when there's dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Is that also a characteristic? I don't know. I mean, where the intention is not pure, I guess, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Well, our intentions rarely are pure. We're very complicated <laughs> beings. But yeah, I mean, honesty is the is the bedrock for healthy relationships. It's very difficult to have. A relationship when there isn't honesty. So when that's when that's not present, um, that's uh, that's that's challenging to to engage, to be able to try to address it, to 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 develop more trust. You know, it gets particularly complicated when you start to look at the collective level, right? Like, what's the what's the effect when in an organization the leadership isn't honest with the staff or the employees or in the government when elected officials are not honest. We see again and again through history in our country. Thank you. Maybe our last last question or comment. Thank you for your talk. Um, You know, I was thinking about children <clears throat> how children are sometimes raised to with this deep urge to belong, and at the same time, um, part of that is to experience difference as something, experience experience other as something that's to be, you know, an an aspect of belonging. That in order to belong, we have to other uh-huh. something, yeah. and how pervasive that is in yeah. our communities sure. and in our society, yeah. and how it starts yeah. very, very young. Yeah. So there's a lot to unlearn. There is, yeah. I, I mean, thank you for what you're bringing in. It's very, very important, and I think, and both are not just um, social. Those are those are both biologically rooted. The, the need to belong, very, very deep need for us as social creatures that's in our uh, in our ancestry we, we come into the world needing to belong we depend on uh, human connection for our survival early in life which is about belonging feeling connected and then um, there's a lot of studies have been done on the perception of in-group and out-group which is also kind of wired into us again just through through evolution in terms of living in small bands and tribes and that that main community being the source of safety and cohesion and those who are outside of that community being a potential threat so those are those are forces that are there naturally in our biology that then uh, get amplified through social conditioning and and can be very very powerful absolutely and so in, in looking at these in looking at our communication and relationships, there are whole realms of, of cultural conditioning and um, socialization and beliefs that we come into contact with, uh, that um, there can be, as you said, a lot of unlearning 
to do. Yeah, thank you. Great. So before we um, before we close, I just want to make one or two uh, one or two announcements. Um, really, just grateful to each of you for taking time out of your life to come and practice together and listen. And um, if you found this valuable, if you um, enjoy the way I think about things or talk about things, I would love to stay in touch. Um, the, the best way to do that is through my email list, and there's a clipboard on the table back there where you can sign up. I, I only send two emails a month. Um, I put a lot of thought and care into them, and I always try to include something that I think will be of value, like an article that I wrote or a link to a talk I gave. Um, and when you sign up, you get a free guided meditation series and a short ebook on contemplative practice that I wrote. So that's the email list. Um, and then there's also some flyers for upcoming retreats and programs. And there, there are two that I want to mention. Um, one, uh, starting in March, I'm leading an eight-month program in nonviolent communication right here in Berkeley, one weekend a month. So if you're interested in exploring some of this training more deeply, uh, pick up one of those flyers and check it out. Uh, and then also later this fall, I'm uh, co-teaching a five-day insight meditation retreat with a friend and colleague of mine, Matthew Brensilver. Some of you know Matthew. He's a, another local Dharma teacher here. Um, that'll be down near Santa Cruz in September. So there's a flyer for that out on the back table. Uh, and perhaps last, um, anyone who would, who would like, I'm happy to stick around and, and sign a copy of my book if you want to pick one up. So... Let's shift gears, connect with the heart, and offer some loving kindness to ourselves and others. So just picking up that tone inside of warmth and care in the way that you know how. Beginning to fill yourself with that energy of goodwill, of friendliness. Recognizing that all beings just want to be happy. We're all just doing the best we can. Sending that wish for the happiness and well-being of others outwards. Also including these individuals in our wider community. For Robin, struggling with a difficult divorce, Robin, may you be at peace with things as they are. For Namita and Sandeep, sending love, Sending the wish for self-expression, realization, and healing. For Gary B., who's going through a divorce, who recently lost his father. Gary may be well, may be strong, safe, and at peace. For Mason, struggling to find employment. For Dylan, facing the loss of employment. For David, struggling with addiction. For all those who are struggling, who are living in fear. For all those living in hatred or confusion or greed. For all those without meaningful work without a warm, safe place to sleep. May you be safe. May you be seen and loved. May you know your own true worth and goodness.
When we do this practice, we don't do it just for ourselves. Recognizing our deep interconnectedness with one another and with all life on the planet. May our practice awaken our hearts and minds that we may find the resources, the intelligence and the wisdom to learn how to heal this precious planet. May the benefits of our practice be for the peace, the safety and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May there be more peace on this earth. Thank you so much for your practice. Have a good night. Get home safely. I'll hang out for a little bit if anyone wants to say hi. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.